0: looking at uh, the life of Saul who you may better know in his Roman name of Paul that he goes under for most of the New Testament by. I I suppose there's four parts to this uh, series and I'm going to use this chair Uh, and um, there's four parts to this series and and really the first part of it I I suppose we looked at uh, a couple of years ago. And what I mean by that is that this series that we're doing right now, we've jumped back into, is a series on the book of Acts. The beginnings of the church. It's a book that written by the Luke, the same author who wrote his own letter of, of the gospel according to Luke. And this is kind of the, the next part of his story. The life of Christ, and now the life of the beginnings of the church. And so what Luke did is, uh, he wrote this out, and we were on a series looking at the book of Acts back in 2010, and we ended up putting that on the shelf for a little bit. We went through all the way to chapter 8, Sean reviewed this with you last week if you were here, and now we've kind of brought it off the shelf again, and we want to continue to look at the early inner workings and the way that the church grew. And so back there in 2010, we spent some time looking at the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, where we first caught a glimpse of this guy named Saul. And the first picture we have of him, or one of the first pictures we have of him, is him standing back from a mob that is throwing large stones at one of the first deacons of the church. A guy named Stephen. Uh, It is uh, a persecution that the church is beginning to have for their statement of faith about who Christ is. And Saul is standing back, holding the robes of these individuals, giving his approval to what is happening this silent individual in the background, and Luke highlights him. Uh, And then we come up to last week when we get the next glimpse of Saul. And Sean did a great job of talking to us about the conversion experience on a road with um, papers to go and persecute more and to uh, kill more followers of the way, Christians, those who would give their life to Christ and call themselves the church. Uh, And he gets confronted by... Jesus uh, stopped in his tracks, and his life is changed. Later on, he writes in one of his letters about how really, just in the same way that Christ brought light out of darkness in creation, he brought my dark heart to a place of light. Uh, Christ began to shine in me in the same way that he began creation. He began something new in me. And so we saw about that immediate turnaround in his life from one who was against to one who was for, from one who was in darkness to one who was light. This is a hinge event for Paul in his life, from Saul to Paul. I'll go back and forth between those two names because we're talking about this hinge moment. From persecutor to proclaimer, this is this hinge moment in his life. And so last week was kind of week two, and this week we're going to look at... Uh, Pardon me. Last week, Sean called it "what change," or he changed me, and then this week is really what that change brought. Because there was some massive kickback from that change that happened in Paul's life, and then next week we'll move on and look at the last picture of Paul in this kind of four-part series, mini-series on him from the book of Acts. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into this. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for inspiring Luke to write this record of your church beginnings your church beginning Uh, we pray father that uh, your word would come alive as your spirit illuminates it to us this morning that we would walk from this place changed that how we came would not be how we would leave that your word your spirit and your word would be active in our lives today refining us and moving us from where we are to a closer to the image of Christ that you desire for us In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know what your life transformation story is. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home. And so you have always been in a place where you've been nurtured and supported and encouraged in your walk with Christ. You perhaps accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior at an early age. Or perhaps it was a progressive thing as you began to understand it from a child to then a teen where you changed from kind of, your, kind of a concrete understanding of it to more of a subjective understanding of it. I don't know what your story is, but some of you would have that kind of a story. Others of you, though, it's quite different. You perhaps accepted Christ as a late teen or as a young adult or as an adult or maybe just if you're older in the last couple of years in the twilight of your life. And because of that change in understanding of who Christ is to you and for you, you have gotten some kickback from that. Uh, Your family has not understood. Uh, Your friends have kind of thought, what's happened in you and not in a good way. They just It's that sense of, I'm not sure. And, and either there's outright persecution towards you, emotionally, physically. Or, or there's this suspicion that kind of hangs over, is this for real? And there's a suspicion of whether or not it's authentic. And this kind of hangs over you when you walk in this, or walked in that area. This is the story of Paul. It's this suspicion. It's this persecution. It's this kickback because of what the Lord did in his life. There's a lot of life change stories in Scripture. Uh, a few of them come to mind. Mark chapter 5. There's a great story about Jesus and his disciples in a boat going from one side of a lake to the other side of the lake. Uh, maybe some of you recognize this story as I tell it. He gets to the other side of the lake and they land in this kind of a graveyard, a burial area. And the residents. Weird guy is a demon-possessed man running around with chains hanging off his wrists and perhaps his ankles because the locals, tired of him interrupting perhaps their funeral processions, has uh, strapped him into a cave. But under the power of these demons in his life, he's actually broken the chains and now is running around and it gets worse because he's not wearing anything. A disturbing sight for sure as Jesus lands on the shore. This is the greeting party. Not sure this is the best place to beach Jesus. Should it be somewhere else? And because of this God set up appointment, Jesus engages this man. And binds these demons in his life and sets him free from this oppression of evil. And if you're familiar with the story, you'll know that the demons interact with Jesus. They speak with him, recognizing that he's an authority. And they say to him, please don't send us to that place we don't want to talk about. uh, Pigs over here. Send us into the pigs. And the local economy was underwritten by uh, pork. This group of people were into bacon. And, uh, And that's what they... And so Jesus sends the demons, into this herd of pigs. And a couple of thousand of these pigs go off a cliff and land in the lake and drown. Which, skipping to the end of the story, when Jesus and the disciples get back in the boat and start paddling off against the lake would make for an interesting scene as they navigate bobbing pig carcasses. But anyway, that aside, that's the youth pastor place my mind goes. Um, this, this, this guy, now set free, wants to come with Jesus. Because I want you, you set me free, Jesus, and I want to just be warm and safe and comfortable and just kind of get in the boat with you and travel with you and the gang. And Jesus says, no, I've got another story in mind for you. Head back to your family, tell them what's happened, and head out to the ten cities in your area and go there and proclaim this story of what I've done for you. And so he goes off kind of as really one of the first missionaries, Traveling around and telling the story of what God has done for him. I don't know if he had any persecution or kickback. He definitely did from the pig farmers. They were not impressed with him, nor were they impressed with Jesus. And and so there was a little bit of persecution perhaps there, a little bit of kickback. Uh, there's other stories. Uh, just back in the chapter before Acts chapter 9 that we're going to look at today in just a moment. We'll read it. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, there's a story of Philip and an Ethiopian man. The Ethiopian had traveled up into the area of of the Israel area and and Philip had interacted with him. Uh, He was the Ethiopian reading from the Hebrew scriptures, what we would today call the Old Testament. And he's reading about this promised Messiah and he's not understanding all that he's reading. And so Philip comes on the scene and he says, could you explain this to me? And Philip goes on to explain and open up and show this picture of the Hebrew scriptures of the Messiah who is Jesus in fulfillment. And the man's mind is open and he understands and he says, I want to embrace this Christ as my Messiah. And that happens right there his life is changed. It's a hinge moment for this Ethiopian man. And then the story goes on that they take him down to a a river or a a stream or something and, and and they baptize him there. And then Philip moves on. And supposedly this man heads back to his own country where he can, again, share the story of a life change that Jesus brought about with him. And we're not told anything of the story of what happens. Perhaps there was persecution. Perhaps there was suspicion. Did this really happen? Did this really take, maybe there was suspicion, we don't know. But there certainly was both, persecution and suspicion for Paul. Acts chapter 9, if you want to turn there and follow along with me today, feel free. Otherwise, you can just listen and I'll read. We're also, by the way, going to hop into a book that Paul wrote a number of years later called Galatians, which is a few to the right, so you might want to find that and stick a finger in it. Chapter 9 talks about Saul's conversion and Sean did a great job of opening that up for us and helping us understand it and the implications of it for our own life last week. And now we pick up... I'll start at 18 just to rewind a little bit and we'll go through to verse 31. I'm reading out of the NIV. It may be a little bit different if you pulled a Bible out of one of the chairs. uh, But the same story. Different translation. Immediately... Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, something's going to happen between the verse I just read and the next one, but not yet. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name of Jesus? Uh, he, and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled these Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Messiah. After many days had gone by, The Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night, lured him in a basket through an open window in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how he on his journey had seen the Lord. And that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them. And moved about freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. But they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. And it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in number and living in the fear or the awe of the Lord. It's a great story. But as I mentioned something happens between verse 19 and the next, I guess, 19a, if you want to call it that, and 19b. Paul is, getting, is about to get, after his conversion, some major kickback. a Major kickback and persecution for people who wanted to kill him, because these are the Jewish people that he used to spend time with. This is the group that he aligned himself with. These were his people, but now they're not. And they didn't understand. And they were out for blood. They wanted his death in the same way that Saul had wanted the death of those who had followed Christ just earlier. And then he interacts with the disciples and they're suspicious. Is this guy really who he says he is or is this a trick? Is this life transformation authentic or not? This is hanging over him. And if it was me, the discouragement and the sense of being alone in this, nobody believes me, the fear... I mean, these are the kind of things that people, even today, who change from uh, an Islamic background or perhaps a uh, Hindi background to uh, Christianity, face from families as they're cut off. I was interacting just a while ago with someone who's moved out of, uh, under, uh, out of the Jew, uh, Jehovah Witness community and has embraced Christ as their Lord in another city we were talking, and they're basically been shunned and shut off. That community that once embraced and the family they were a part of there, both biologically and as an extended community, no longer are interested in interacting with this person because their faith has changed and so shunned. As far as this person is concerned, the community doesn't exist anymore. They're, they're done. And this is what Paul was tasting as a result of his life change story. And his conversion. And I don't know if that's some of your story, whether in a large way or a small way, from family or at work or at school. Well there's a spit that happens and I've alluded to it and I hope I've got your curiosity up. Between nineteen A we'll call it, after Paul's these scales fall from his eyes and he's baptized and he regains his strength. And the time that he spends in Damascus. Now, Luke, who wrote Acts, doesn't refer to it. And most theologians feel it's probably because Luke is interested in the the life of the church and the beginnings of the church in this little three-year period that happens between these verses, three years, mind you, didn't really impact the growth of the church, and so he left it out. But Paul refers to it later, and he refers to it in a couple of places. I want to look at his reference in Galatians chapter 1 today. I'll start reading in verse 10. I'm now, says Paul, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Can we just stop there for a second? I mean, we could. I could just have come up, read that sentence perhaps. Let it sink in and walk out. Service is done. Let's go get the donuts that are left over. Uh, that's... Am I doing what I do to win the approval of the people around me or of God? That is a massive sentence. And the implications for that are huge. Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be serving Christ. Talks a little bit about his background now. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught to it. Taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. But, and here comes the hinge, when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to wait or to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and then later returned to Damascus. After three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. So just to rewind here, after my conversion, I didn't go immediately to Damascus or Jerusalem, what's referred to here in chapter 9 of Acts, but three years I spent in Arabia and then back down to Damascus. And so between regaining his strength in verse 19a and Saul spent several days with disciples in Damascus in nineteen B. We've got this chunk of about three years. What in the world did he do in Arabia for three years? And why did he go? And I want to suggest to you today, and we we're going to camp here for the next few minutes. I want to suggest to you today that what he did during these three years prepared him. And got him set. And allowed him to endure the persecution that was coming. The rough waters that were ahead. The rejection outright of some who used to be called friends. And the suspicion of those who would be his new community. What he did during these three years makes all the difference. And this is the stuff that can encourage us. Maybe not even in three year chunks, but in shorter chunks even. To be able to endure just life as it comes at us. Uh, the first thing he did in these three years was he just got away to be with God. I mean, this is the model of Jesus. I think about Mark chapter 14. Uh, sorry, that's not true. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, you may want to turn there and just follow it with me. But again, a, a great story of Jesus. This is the one where he walks on the water. Love this story. Uh, he's in verse th- or chapter 13, he's working with these 5,000 people. And he feeds all these 5,000 people. Long day. Good lunch. And now evening is starting to come. And in Matthew 14, it says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat to go ahead with him, to go ahead of him to the other side. Uh, the disciples wanted to hang out with Jesus. We want to be with you. We love the fact you just made all that food. That was incredible. Can we hang out with you? And he makes them get in the boat. No, get in the boat and go. I've got other things I have to do. What is it? Doesn't matter. Get in the boat and go. Makes them go. And, and then he has to dismiss the crowds. They wanted these leftover, these 5,000. They're eating their, their, out of their little doggy bags, their extra food that was made. And he's like, no, you guys go. Head home. I need to be by myself. After he had dismissed them, he went up a mountainside by himself to pray. Um, I have just poured out all this ministry and all these people and I need to get away with God so that I'll be prepared for what's coming next. I've got to get away with my Father, says Jesus. And so he goes and he prays. And when evening came, He was there alone. wasn't with others. It was by himself, focused time with the Father. But the boat had already moved a considerable distance from land, buffeted by waves because the wind was against it. So when Jesus has finished his alone time, his getaway time with his Father, heads down the mountain, how am I going to get there? I'm going to walk on the water. And there he goes. And the story unfolds. He's late for the boat because he's got to spend time with the Father. How many of us go, man, the deadline is there. I don't have God time today. Uh, The the clock is ticking. I'm in a rush. I packed my schedule so heavy that I I don't have time. Sorry, God. And Jesus says, transportation, the ferry's going to leave. I don't care. Father takes priority. And he sets that aside and he goes and spends time with God. And in the same way, Saul says, My mind is overwhelmed by the revelation I've just been given. I have got to go and get away with God to sort out the implications for this. I've got to go. And so he goes. And the question I have for us is, where do we go to sort out the implications of what God is teaching us? Where's our place? Where's where's that chair in the living room that we reserve for? Other people use it. It's used for other things. But for me that's my, I'm going to sit there and meet with God chair. It's kind of a set-aside place for me. Where is that corner table in the coffee shop for you where you just get away with God? I lived in Lethbridge for a period of time in my life, and there was a two-story coffee shop with big picture windows on the second story that looked out to the road below. And I loved going there and getting my tea and having my Bible and my journal and heading up and just sitting in this corner little table and chair, Looking out over people walking and and looking across above the buildings and the horizon and the blue skies and the wind blowing things down the road in Lethbridge. Very windy there. Very windy. Uh, And and I just would spend time with God. Other people sat at that table in those chairs throughout the week. But for me, that was a getaway spot. That was my mountaintop. That was my Arabia when I needed it. Where is your place? We're creatures of habit. And when we habitually treat something one way or an area one way, it's that rhythm begins. Where's your time out? We didn't put notes in today uh, and let you take notes today, but if you were taking notes, that would be the question on there. Where is your place to go to get away with God? Something to consider this week. And when you figured out where your place is or where you know that place is, then what's your practice? What do you do there? Where's your place? Where's your pra- What's your practice? How do you spend time pushing into the heart of the Father? Scripture? there's a spiritual discipline coming into play, isn't it? Our Scripture, the word of God that His Holy Spirit illuminates to change us, sharper than a two-edged sword, cuts through bone and marrow, really to the heart of things. The Word. I love journaling. I'm a journaler. I do it terribly. I, every year I get a new journal. And uh, this is my 2012 edition here. And uh, I write two or three times a week, uh, sometimes less, sometimes more. And I, and I fill it with my thoughts and my prayers and what I'm pondering and, and lists. And just even this last week for me, I, uh, I cut out a little prayer article out of a paper I was reading and photocopied and stuck it in there. How do not interact with it. In and I got... Probably about 17 of these now stacked up in a box in the basement. They are incredibly encouraging to go back and read and revisit those moments in my life that I have forgotten about where God has shown himself to be Father and Lord, Rescuer, Encourager, Discipline. It's also very discouraging because I read back and go, man, I am still have not learned that lesson. Mm. Uh, Our Bible, uh, journals, uh, prayer, speaking out our heart to the Father, and then listening. Prayer is both. Where's our place? When we go there, what's the practice? Saul got away with God for three years to prepare his heart for what was coming. Where do we get alone with God? That'll bring us through the persecution and the suspicion. Uh, And the second thing he did, after he went away to Arabia, it it pops back in here, and it says, after that, Saul spent, verse 19b now, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. He comes back from time with God, and immediately plugs himself in to community of believers. His people, the people of God. He put community around him next. Immediately. Uh, At one point there in verse 25, they lower that same community, rescues him, lowers him in a basket through an opening in the wall, and he goes to Jerusalem. And what does he do immediately when he gets to Jerusalem? Tries to join the disciples, connect into community of believers. New city, new place of ministry, got to get connected into community. So if the first question of the day is, where's your place and how do you get away with God? Because that's going to prepare us for this. The second question is getting together with God's people. Who are the people of God that you connect with on a regular basis? One of the things we talk about as we work out our vision, the answer to our mission here at the church, of I mentioned before of, of becoming fully matured followers of Jesus Christ who choose to impact our world. How do we do that? We have this vision with these goals. And one of those goals is that we would see people connect to community. It's a core part of our goal, our vision of why we exist. And, and for the most part, we really champion growth groups. Over 200 of us in this church community are a part of a growth group that meets on a regular, scheduled basis. To encourage one another, to pray for one another, to read the word, to talk about the application and how to work out the Sunday message in real life. For some of us it's women's ministries that meet throughout the week for others of us there's other Bible studies that we get connected with but we really push the growth group thing here and in September you'll have another opportunity to sign into that and connect to community. Who is your community of faith that you connect with? Without that you just when the hard stuff comes you're left hanging. We back up a little bit in Acts to chapter 2 verse 42, I believe, where it gives us a picture. Luke gives us a picture of what I call the kind of the four pillars of the church. The four things we do as we come together as the church. And this is a whole another sermon, so I'll just highlight it. When we connect with community, they devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. So put your head back. The whole Bible hadn't been written yet. They just had the Hebrew scriptures. And it's the apostles who are on the move for God, and they're seeing life change. So what they're doing is they're giving themselves, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. From Scripture, God on the move then, and from what they're experiencing, and Jesus is sharing with them now. So it's God on the move then and now. They talk about what God's doing through the Word and current. And to fellowship, with the exception of this church, every church I've been a part of, has set aside a room for this purpose, fellowship, the fellowship hall. Um, it's where we go to fellowship, which for most of us equals eating sandwiches, enjoying coffee, and having small talk. And I really wrestle with that as a pillar that the church was to devote itself to. Sandwiches, coffee, and small talk in the church foyer. Uh, it- And that intrigued me. A little while ago, I pushed into that a little more. This word fellowship, what does it mean? Um, And and the answer is kind of a two-sided piece. One is, fellowship is about intimate sharing of what's going on deep inside our life. It is getting raw and real with people about our life. That is what one half of fellowship is. The other half is then meeting those needs in practical ways. It's a spiritual need, it's a spiritual support and ministering to that through prayer. Uh, on the other hand, it, it could be a, a need, physical need, and it's then responding to that with practical ministry, of stuff or time or, or that's fellowship, deep sharing what's going on in our life, and then responding, the community responding to that. Now that I understand as being a pillar and committing to as a church when we gather. That makes sense to me. Apostles teaching, God on the move then and now. Fellowship, intimate sharing of what's going on in my life and then practical ministry to that need. To the breaking of the bread, and we find out a little bit later in this paragraph that that's not only about communion together, but it's also about sharing meals. I like the, the pillars of the church. Eating together. Sharing meals together. Oh, that's good. Because stuff happens as we share over there. And, and to prayer. And we know that's missional prayer because the fellowship involves the ministering to one another and praying for one another. So this prayer is missional. It's global. And it repeats that as this paragraph goes on and reinforces this. But this is what community does when they gather in the church. This is what growth groups are about. This is what our communities, our little Gangs that we hang out with, it's, and Christ has got to be the center of it. Because if you come together with any other reason, it's not a community around Christ. It's just a club. It's just a gathering. It's just your social crew. It's a project. It's a task force. It's a team. It's a committee, as we call it sometimes. Which are all good things, but they're not communities of faith. Because those, by very definition, have to be hubbed with Christ. Jesus is the center of those gatherings. And so, what do we do? We get away with God and we connect to community. Who are those people for you? Who are they? We come back to Acts and it answers the question of how could Paul get through? How could Saul make it? When In verse 23, Jews are conspiring to kill him. Well, easy. God has given him a sense of peace and a people around him to support him. Verse 25, his followers, they take him and lower him by a basket. They rescue him. There they go. And then he comes to Jerusalem. Again, connecting with community. They're all afraid of him. There's suspicion involved. But then somebody takes a risk. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that what he says has changed in him really is. Huge lesson from Barnabas here for us. I don't know about that person. They say they're changed. But are they really? And Barnabas takes a risk. And he brings Saul to the apostles and says, basically, in my own words, despite the suspicions you have, this guy's legit. He is who he says he is. Let's embrace him. And they do that, and then they learn that others are trying to kill him. In verse 30, it's when the brothers, when the community of faith learns this. They get Paul out of there. They take him down to Caesarea. They send him to Tarsus. So this is the story of a life change that brings about blowback. Persecution. Suspicion. Life is not easy in this, but time with the Lord and in community, landed in community is what moves him through. And the results? Verse 31. The church is in a time now of peace. It's strengthened. It's encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It's growing in numbers. And who wouldn't with God's Spirit moving in people's lives? As they spend time with Him. And community. This real community. Coming around those who are new to the faith. That grow. And living in the fear of the Lord. The sense of God. You are amazing. And we are in awe of you. God is mighty to save. This is His business. Zephaniah 3.17 and 18. That were written today. Read today. Pardon me. Were This. And. This. The band, why don't you guys come and join me? This is what it's all about. A God who is mighty to save, who takes great delight in you, who will quiet you with His love and will rejoice over you with singing. This is our God. And if He's not your God, I want to encourage you to consider embracing Him as such, even this day, because He is mighty to save and to rescue us. And to keep us through these waves and winds that blow.